Hello and welcome to Artwork, the podcast produced by Fab NYC that brings together leaders in the arts and cultural field to talk about artwork. I am Denise, the associate producer on the podcast, and that was my best Risa Shoop impression. <laughs> <laughs> this is so lit so, already. <laughs> So you can kind of hear my guess, but I'm just going to keep talking for now. Um, so last episode, actually, we had such an amazing conversation, uh, which Sarita Covington led, featuring Ebony Golden and Paloma McGregor. And I was so very lucky to be a fly on the wall. This is actually an episode that was planned quite a while ago. You notice a lot of similar thematic concerns, um, but you'll, you'll come to see that even though we're switching up the format again, uh, it's quite a different conversation. So, first, let me introduce you to my two guests, the first of which is the splendid Mara Cuffey. Hi, Mara. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, yes. I'm super pumped to be here. I'm Mara Cuffey. I, by day, I am an administrator at EMC Arts in Harlem, by night and in between and weekends and all other minutes that I have available to myself. Not all of them, a lot of them. <laughs> um, I serve as the co-founder of my little collective that could, the Free Breakfast Program, that does all sorts of things honoring the legacy of the Black Panther Party's mm-hmm. mission towards revolutionary humanism. We do stuff in Philly and in New York. And yeah, that's me. Awesome. And my second guest is Psych, Risa Stoop. <laughs> Hi, guys. Risa, do you, do you feel the need to introduce yourself? Well, sure. Um, yes, I am Risa Shoop, as Denise accurately stated before. Um, Denise, just so you know, I am mostly channeling Brooke Gladstone when I'm doing this, so take that <laughs> note however you will. I am not Brooke Gladstone. I mean, neither am I. Um <laughs> But who I am is currently the executive director of Fourth Arts Block, although as you may have seen in your email or on your social media, I will be vacating this position at the end of the month. I will retain a lot of love for FAB and I will continue to support this wonderful organization, but I am moving on to a new position that I am very excited and very honored to accept but you won't learn about that for a couple more weeks. Uh, I am also um, a very... Uh, active member of Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts New York, through which I am a consultant on Create NYC, New York City's first ever cultural plan, along with my NOCD colleagues, Gonzalo Casals and Karen Atlas. And we work together with the team led by Hester Street Collaborative. I do other things too. Um, mostly <laughs> I ride a bike. Do you yeah, really? yeah, like I cook. You Where's know? the time? Um, I have a cat I'm very invested in. Nina. And I have, a, I have a wonderful partner who supports me in this work. Shout out, Die Glazer. Late last fall, uh, November 8th, the three of us were actually part of a long table discussion co-hosted by PS122 and Loisada Center on this very uh, big concept of cultural equity. For those who are not so familiar, the long table format was first developed by Lois Weaver as an experiment in participation and public engagement. So PS122 actually recorded the entire discussion. And right after, as we all do, we were exchanging thoughts and having side conversations and decompressing. We do it anyway, so why not have a public dialogue? Mm-hmm. Um, So today I'll be acting a little bit more like a stage manager and playing a few clips from the discussion as a way to strike the match for Risa and Mara to dig in and dig deep 
Both of them can be more free to wear whatever hats they choose to wear. Mm, that um, feels good. <laughs> um, so today we're hoping this serves uh, like a little bit more of a temperature check. Mm-hmm. Where are we now in this conversation of cultural equity? And before I play this first clip, uh, here's a question for the both of you. Mm-hmm. Why did you, you as Mara and you as Risa, go to this long table discussion on cultural equity? Why was it important for you to be there? A number of contributing factors. I think there's this enormous pressure on anyone who's involved in social justice work and equity work, who's a person of color, a woman of color, to be involved in any conversation when it happens so that whether you actually do have a seat at the table or not, at least you're keyed into how other people are talking about things. So I know for myself, I put quite a bit of weight on it's really important that I'm at least a part of something. So there was that. Secondly, I actually was not very involved or had a lot of insight into what was going on for the New York City Cultural Plan. So this was my very first introduction to what that is, what it will look like. Um, And I was frankly excited that there was a method for having dialogue other than a panel uh, in an auditorium <laughs> with yes. a little the mm-hmm. t- 15 minute Q&A at the end. I've been to long table format, Lois Weaver long table format mm-hmm. conversations before. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting when done well. Mm-hmm. I don't even done well. I'm, let me take that back. I think they're really interesting regardless. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the other interesting contributing factor a friend who is does not work in the arts but works in a creative profession hit me up to say, are you going to this thing? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> anyway, so I thought it was really curious that people even outside of what we would traditionally call like the arts scene in New York and people who work for nonprofit arts organizations in New York were also keyed into this um, situation. So that felt like another pull for me to really be involved. Yeah. I think that's those are reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are those are serious reasons. I you know I think there's like two major motivating factors for why I was there. One is maybe more on the pragmatic side. I'm the executive director of Fab. PS122 is one of our members. They asked me if I would help do some outreach and be kind of a like a supportive partner in developing the project. Although it was entirely theirs, and I want to kind of give them a little bit of a boost for for putting that evening together and creating that long table space for us to to have a dialogue and I wanted to and just as I'm supporting that now I wanted to support that then again in my role as ED of Fab and someone who's you know a longtime fan of PS122 the other motivating factor I think is much more personal and, and in a sense global and it's about you know me being a white person who has an anti-racist analysis and way of working that comes from specific trainings I've done, like understanding and undoing racism with the People's Institute of Survival and Beyond, and wanting to be really transparent about the fact that I am a white person and I'm doing this work for these reasons, and I want to put that out there in all discussions around equity and you know support and amplify the leadership of people of color who are leading this struggle as they always have. Can I can I comment? Oh yes, please. That's so lit. Can I and I know and I mean we know each other enough yeah. and I've heard you say mm-hmm. these things before, but it's unfortunately few and far between that you hear white leadership admit that I am a you know, yeah. 
that there's this entire ecosystem of which I could have an anti-racist lens if mm -hmm. I chose, and I could use the platform and the power that I wield to be public, be honest, be, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Anyway, yeah. that's all. So this first clip is mid-discussion, um, and we actually get to hear Libertad from the Loisada Center speak. I, I feel like, uh, obviously, uh, mobility is a big issue in, in, in New York City landscape, mobility of different kinds. There's the, the migration aspect of things. There's the displacement aspect of things. There's also the staying put of things. You know, those are all different types of mobility. Um, We're right now on the eve of an election, and it seems like our options are either divisive status quo or tyranny. One is about staying put, the other one is going to barbarism and to hell. Um, <laughs> in a way, staying put, becoming invisible sometimes, is kind of the new radical. I don't know. <laughs> no, it seems so in, in, in terms of this. Uh, so when we think about cultural equity, my question is, um, how are we going to, even though we're talking about the New York City landscape, which is much different, and thank God I live in New York City, <laughs> and thank God I know, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, how much are we protected by it? Not only in terms of how are we going to respond to the nar to the bigger narrative of the nation once whatever tomorrow comes and we don't know the apocalypse or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know how do we you know how we are also in tune to the wider narrative of the nation and at the same time in a vo more like real politics way, how is it that we respond to the a cultural plan for ten years when if even if administrations change. Right. Because people don't know, like, you know, I'm not gonna, like, say, like, this is the best administration or not, but how, like, how, how, how stable is, is this whole thing that we're putting our sweat into? So, setting the context again, um, that clip and this entire discussion was pre election. Um, so, Mara, Risa, let's take a little step back. Um, what would you say the climate was then and what is it now? And where or how does this conversation on cultural equity fit into this wider narrative that Libertad points to? I would like to just speak about the... So you asked, what is what was the context then and what is the context now? Mm -hmm. Or what was the reality then and what is the reality now? Mm -hmm. And I I would like to say from a Lower East Side perspective that it... It may things may have intensified, but the the problems of displacement, of predatory landlords, of um, you know inequitable entry points into all manner of infrastructures, like those things are that are now what they were then, and I say this because Loisita Center is such a strong place for people to gather and share and process those specific issues within the Lower East Side and of course how they also are reflected in other communities and I want to elevate that and say that that's that in that sense again maybe things have intensified but like n there's no new problem hmm. um, I'll add I feel like uh, it's so helpful to hear you say that, Risa, mm -hmm. because not that I intend to be, but it's easy for me to get in sort of an emotional tizzy 
out of nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking yeah. everything is cool and fine. And then some, you know, news pops up on my iPhone. I'm yep. like, oh, trash. <laughs> like, we're yep. all dying. Trash, 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 and I trash, internalize trash. it and I just kind of huddle into my cave, which is a terrible way to be if you're trying to promote, you know, but so collective rational. care. And, yeah, right. So rational. Right. I know why yeah. I'm feeling that yeah. way, but it's also like doesn't have a lot of utility in the Mm -hmm. long run Mm -hmm. all to say i think there's some like collective emotional change of context between then and now i think the real reality Mm -hmm. as you said is that policies Mm -hmm. around how we live and be in new york city haven't changed right like we know that the struggle continues yeah but there's a sense of like as Libertad was saying, what what is like the New York City narrative as it either is a part of or different from mm-hmm. the narrative of the whole country? I think there's a stronger connection between those two things now. And like folks in New York City, I I don't know for sure, but I have this feeling that are becoming emblematic of what a movement could look like. Mm-hmm. And hmm. Yeah, there's there's a level of emotional urgency that was there when this conversation took place, but it's I think it's different now. I think the temperature has gone up maybe 50 degrees for some people and some people it hasn't at all. Mm-hmm. That's my sense. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's like a really interesting hinge, right? Mm-hmm. Is like for whom has this not changed how you work? And And by that, I do specifically mean both for those of us who I think are actively working in a struggle for liberation in many, many ways. And we're like, okay, well, things just got a lot more drastic and urgent, but my work is my work and I'm just going to keep doing it. And then also for those folks who are resisting the work even more now because mm-hmm. there's, there is a president who is saying to them all that shit about inequity and racism is a conjured fiction Mm -hmm. just meant to keep you down. White people don't worry about it. I got you Mm -hmm. like that, that, that hinge, like that is the thing that terrifies me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I guess we can be explicit when like recent, this whole, back and forth now we're yeah. the before and after we're referring to Trump getting elected yes. <laughs> and all of the, oh, yes. and all oh, of yes. the misery this that's ensued. That's not, no. that's we not hidden. Fascist yes. Let's... After we had this long table. Yeah. Something else that, um, Libertad said that strikes me as really, really powerful was about how, um, maybe it makes more sense to be invisible now. I mm-hmm, think that's mm-hmm. what they were getting at mm-hmm. because mm, a month ago, post-election, post-inauguration, we, my collective free breakfast program, we've been going through a series of deep thinking Mm -hmm. strategy, what's next for us in a greater context or a smaller context, Mm -hmm. um, revisiting why we do what we do and how we might do it differently. Anyways, one of the big things, I was just looking at a picture on my phone from the like paper, big flip charts we were writing on. Mm -hmm. And one of them said, um, be implicit to be explicit. Mm. And wow, like I didn't even realize how connected that is to everything mm-hmm. that Libertad yeah. was saying that, um, right. We were thinking about what is before this idea of radical transparency seemed really important to us rather. Now it feels like, well, the right to opacity is more interesting. Um, 
which is not something that's France Fanon. That's not me. We don't, not everybody needs to know what we're up to. Maybe. I don't know. That feels provocative mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's also a very real historic threat that is not only in the past, is this, this threat continues on from history mm-hmm. around the government observing people and silencing them in any number of violent ways. And I, um, I want to be clear, I am not trying to dissect Libertad's intentions. I am not trying to speak for her. I will say that she and I have discussed in um, public forums and also like in our private conversations about COINTELPRO and mm-hmm. that that travesty mm-hmm. of governmental power is a very real threat now to people who are working on the radical left, who are people of color. Um, and I think that we all need to get real with that. And so when, when you guys in our, in our conversation right now are talking about the right to opacity, um, being implicit to be explicit, not needing to tell everybody what you're up to, that is as much about survival and thriving as it is also about responding again to this very real, very historic threat. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. how do you feel about, you know, cultural equity as the lens or the approach towards, towards achieving a kind of stability or how are we, or you individually actually responding to stability right now or achieving stability or stability, just like whatever Mm -hmm. it's not normal. So we, this is not happening. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like for me right now, at least the one of the big question mark I have, especially listening to that clip again, is it that cultural, a, a cultural plan for New York City? Is that the methodology by mm-hmm. which we achieve mm-hmm. stability? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Stability for who? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what is the method? Is equity the method? I have no answers. <laughs> I mean, so I'm going to speak more to your second mm-hmm. question. Like, is equity the method? And I'm not trying to like wag a finger, but like, could, would we agree perhaps that equity is not a verb? Mm-hmm. Like it's a noun. Like in a, like, mm. you know? I don't know. I, okay. So we maybe we don't agree. I feel like. I, equity, I mean that I don't know. I don't, I'm not right. disagreeing. I'm saying yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I quite okay. literally, I could make got the case it. for both. Yeah. Like, question it, mark. It, yeah. I think, and I, you know. I want to reserve my own right to change how I think Mm -hmm. in two seconds, but like I'm with you (laughs) as I was preparing for this episode, especially I wrote down that um, there is either equity or disparity in varying degrees of drastic. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so for me, it's like equity is a, is a state as it is like something, you know, given that I think we live in, in a state of disparity now, and inequity, we must work to achieve equity. That's for me, that's like the behavior, that's the verbing of it all. But we haven't done it yet mm-hmm. yep. for all the reasons that we're talking about here and not talking about here. So when I think about stability, we're that's I I do think that stability, the stability that I want for myself, for the people I love, for the people with whom I work. That's I, that is an equitable state, but we are not there. Uh, and then, so the cultural plan, 
you know, I mean, like, look, I said it in my intro. I'll just say it again. Like, I'm I'm a paid consultant on this <laughs> project, and mm-hmm. I am grateful to do that work, and I am doing it with people I trust. And um, I also want to be very real that, like, this is a it is a plan that will impact. I hope I know that the intention is for it to impact the lives of all New Yorkers. And with that said the plan will put forth a number of recommendations that deliver um, changes to policy, maybe new policies, new programs, new language, um, Mm. emphasizing language that isn't, that, you know, is maybe used in some contexts, but hasn't been used in, in more of a governmental context, like all these things that I think, you know, are very, very good or have the potential to be very, very good, especially through like an anti-racist pro equity lens. But I don't think that this plan gets us to the place of stability. It is part of the process Mm -hmm. to achieve that, but it's on us Mm -hmm. as individual human beings, like, and, and as collectives of humans. And part of that, one of those collective bodies is our government. But again, we are the people we are in charge. And I say that in direct response to the presidential election on November 8th, we still have power to make change. Yeah, my some of my big question marks are because, at least in my collective, I tend to serve as the pessimist, which is it's not that I like being that person, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's sometimes where my heart is. My heart's a little dark sometimes. Yeah. So questions around, um, well, when I want to honor the way that you broke that up for me, that was really helpful. Okay. That being said, I think equity is a state that we may never see in our lifetime. Yep. Right. So mm-hmm. I have my Victor is always reminding me that if you're in the work, it's for generations, not for yourself. And that's like, ooh, that's a heavy thing to take mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking also just this real reminder that is government that the pathway towards that vision. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one collective mm-hmm. and it's one that hasn't always suited us well. Mm-hmm. Or served yep. us well. Yep. And that in late capitalism, visions for an equitable future are imagining an equitable equitable future is mm-hmm. near impossible. Not impossible, near impossible. Um Hey, optimist. Yeah. <laughs> I tried. I like threw that. Yeah. Let me just let me just throw that yeah. in the bag. Yeah. Um I was gonna say something else, but I kind of lost it. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. I think this is also a good segue into our second clip. Um, and the framing around this second clip is what does it mean to succeed in oh, cultural ooh, equity? Great. I would just offer in response to that very quickly that we could not have more culturally specific arts organizations in this city if we tried. They are white cultural or like oriented organizations, right? So the idea that we're making a designation for culturally specific that is separate from the culturally white organizations that rule the city and the country is part of the thing that we need to unpack. You know what I'm saying? That that term even, which is not to put it on you, but it's a term we all use, that that's a bizarre term to use when we're talking about what it, to separate out, what does that mean? Actually, I will ask you, what does that mean, culturally specific organization? It means non-white organization, right? Yeah, you, it, to me it would mean for a particular, but it wouldn't just mean 
it would mean Latina, or it would might mean narrower than that. It might be specific Latin American communities within that, or it could mean African American, or it could mean. It would just not. It would mean non-European lineage, right? It, 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 but narrower than that, even. It doesn't just mean non-European. Okay, so I get you. I feel like there is, yes, yes that, 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 um, the, the attention to uh, specific cultural lineages yep. are there, but the idea that it's culturally specific, totally. full stop, is a little ridiculous, right? Totally. Why don't we totally. see it as New York legacy organizations. We're protectors of, a, of what New York means in the world. And, you know, and the fact cultural specific organizations is like we're erasing and what's happening is because a lot of cultural specific organizations are what have the archives, whatever, you know, you know, and are what preserve the contributions of the difference that this city was built on. And the fact that they, that very cultural specific, you know, groups don't have their own organizations because they don't have equal funding or, or, or many issues. It's that we're losing out not on just, on just those groups. We're losing out as New Yorkers because not only is the output is not being put out there and the collaborations that can happen between whatever kinds of organizations can happen, but also the, the, the technical footprint, the, the, the perceptual, phenomenological, experiential quality of living in New York, you're losing out of because that imprint in those specific neighborhoods that communities have put over the years is being lost out. Because if you don't have the institutions to preserve that and to keep it vital, not just to created like in, in the past, but to keep it vital, mm -hmm. then you lose that. You know, you lose that. So you're losing New York. Ooh, uh, yes. Yes, responses, please. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can just offer that. Yeah, please. Um, mm -hmm. I remember in that moment, my neck and my ears got really hot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Totally. It's still very vivid totally. as I'm re-listening. Um, yeah. Also, right at that moment, part of the purpose of the long table, right, is that ever, there's equal right, opportunity yes. to join the conversation. Yes. So I think there was a lot of disruption in that people left the table and people came yeah. to sit at the table. Like that feeling of hot ears and a hot heart totally. was felt in the whole room. I, I'll be like just honest and say that, you know, as I said to you guys in our little tech break, um, <laughs> There is no success of equity. Like they're just mm -hmm. either either there is equity or there is not equity. There's no like there's no fucking metric. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I um I don't know, I find as an ED that it's just like very deeply important for me to say that and and put that in the world and hold it. Yeah, there's just, there's so much going on. There was so much going so on in that much. moment and so much in that clip. I remember, I mean, there's some, there's some contradictions, right? There's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's one, the, in my personal yes. opinion, so Mara Cuffey, the human hat, not right. speaking on any behalf of any organization, mm -hmm. but the gentleman who was speaking, I think, um, probably a well-intentioned response, but didn't land well. Right. Right. That. Well, for cultural equity, we need to make sure that all um, non-white organizations have a voice, right? Mm -hmm. That's not that's not word for word what he said. That's kind of what he said, which is like, eh, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like everyone in the room was like, uh, I don't think you quite know what is going on here. Mm -hmm. That's not, mm, what do you mean by that? To which someone else responded very eloquently, I think, and also with quite a bit of grit, 
that, well, do you mean then that all these white organizations, white-led organizations are the norm? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that what we mean? And then the question beyond that that didn't quite come up is what do we mean by culture and what culture is valued and worth putting money behind, right? Like what culture is needs to have legacy in New York city and beyond. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I, as you were saying that I was reminded of, um, two people that I also mentioned in my intro, Karen Atlas and mm-hmm. Gonzalo Casals, who, you know, are, in as much as they are my colleagues, I also, I learn a lot from them. And one thing that they talk a, a lot about in general with me, et cetera, is, um, you know, the the right to culture and even more um, actively the right that all people have to participate in the cultural practices that they own, that they want to own, et cetera, and how we support institutions to best work from that kind of community-based and when relevant place-based perspective. Um, and I think that when we consider institutions, there are many, many reasons to consider them as buildings and as like, you know, groups of people moving in some kind of organized formation. And then of course, like, you know, there are important critiques to be made of that and holes to poke. But I think we also have to consider that organizations are people Mm -hmm. and, um, so what's going in, on inside of those institutions and who is who is being amplified and who is being silenced and how does that impact this question, Mara, that you so importantly raise around what is culture and what are we acknowledge and more to the point, what are we acknowledging as culture? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's it's the conversation sort of started to get there in November at the long table around, you know, we know that the funding model is unequal. It's based off of old assumptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, the Met be getting cash. Yeah. (laughs) We know that opera, right. Be getting this and that and the third. I could, I could go on. Um, sorry. I, I, I'm just, I'm feeling a little heated again, remembering how, uh, you know, uncomfortable that, that moment was in the mm-hmm. room. And for me, a reminder that we, none of us really know what we mean by equity ish. Yeah. And I think there's, I've, I've seen two trains of thought. Mm-hmm. We need shared language. One train of thought being we need shared language mm-hmm. and definitions. Mm-hmm. The other being we need um, to live in our complex nuance because that's the only way to truly be inclusive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But both of those are really hard. <laughs> we need to allow for conflict. We need to stop trying to approach every freaking problem as like a thing we can solve and a, and a world in which we can live and, and not make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like you learned to walk, didn't you? You fell down <laughs> a thousand times. Mistakes are inevitable and they're part of the tools that we have to learn from. And so if you reject the possibility of making a mistake, you are not going to learn well. You may learn, but you will not learn well. So how do we how do we share that with our, you know, New York City cultural leaders, people who are in positions of power, who mm-hmm. have salaried jobs and high level institutions? 
to not be so fearful of stating the facts. You know what I mean? Because right. I think that's right. part of it. It's like, right. I'm if I say something wrong, everyone's going to think I'm racist or I'm a homophobic or I'm, you know, this and that. And the third, I'm an ableist or, you know, and that is a scary thing. But maybe you are that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mm-hmm. fucking talk about it. I was leading the witness. You're never going <laughs> to. Thank you. <laughs> and this is called Holding Reese's Feet to the Fire with Mara. Um, but no, if you don't. Maybe you are a racist. Probably, if you are a white person, you are a racist. <laughs> and you can reach me at... <laughs> uh, no, you can really talk to me about that, like, legit <laughs> offline, okay? Anyway, if you're a white person, you're probably a racist. And if you cannot talk about that, then you cannot get anti-racist. And, like, I know this because I was taught this by people I trust. And they keep teaching me this. And I keep learning it because I'm a racist. Because I am complicit with racist systems because I was raised in those systems and given the powers I was given because I'm a white person. And if I can't talk about that, then then like we're screwed because I have most of the power just by virtue of my skin color. What about the, you know, white leaders mm-hmm. in positions of power who can say that right. or can say it in private, can say it at this long table, right. for example, right. but have no way... Maybe they have ways. I'm making lots of assumptions and generalizations here, so forgive me. Yeah. Um, but can't connect that realization to action, an actionable, right, a methodology, yeah. a way forward that mm-hmm. changes the system of right. which we are all complicit, right? So how mm-hmm. can that person also say, okay, this means that we're not just going to do new theater works by, you know, right. l- Latinx playwrights, mm-hmm. yep. even though we've been a white theater company for 50 years rather we're going to partner with this organization pay them yeah right mm-hmm. so you know or i don't know exactly what it is or i'm going to step down in my role there's right. the real radical i'm going to put my community engagement officer in charge for six mm-hmm. months yeah and see what happens as an experiment right i'm gonna pay myself less and mm-hmm. make sure everybody else is paid at least this salary right mm-hmm. for a year yeah. and fight that with my board you know like Yep. Those are, that's at least for me, like that's what I'm thinking about equity. It's that our organizations on the inside feel people work there and say, yeah, I work for an organization that's really about me, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Because that's, that's what gets out in the world, right? Like you have to start from the inside, I think. Totally. I think that's, and it reminds me again, how we talked about earlier, the right to be opaque, Mm -hmm. but also radical transparency, especially Mm -hmm. from, from leaders Mm -hmm. um, and leaders with power, you know, you have it. So why, why are you pretending you don't? Right. A hundred. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it's more than just programs. I think that's my big takeaway. Equity is more than just programs. I know we all on the same page. Yeah, but it is so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I mean, and actually, well, so here's like an interesting, like, tweak to that very true statement. Part of why equity is played out or fought for, is a better way of putting it, is fought for through the development of new and adjustment of old programs is because that is what most of the funding can go to, Mm, right? And I am not excusing anyone not doing the work, but I am saying that part of the infrastructure is predicated on you 
fighting for equity through programs because we are not funding operating support in nearly as an equitable way as we are funding program development and program change. Hello, funders. Right. <laughs> and hey, the thing is, they know, right? Things are happening in the right. last yes, two years in the funder aware. world. Totally. They know, but totally. like, I'm but not, they're still like behind. I actually don't like even. Yes, they're behind. We're behind, and by we, I think I'm saying white people. Um, Can I say whiteness? Whiteness, yeah, mm-hmm. whiteness is behind. Mm-hmm. Um, like also is fake. Like shout out to whiteness being fake. <laughs> right. Like, um, <laughs> but we all be subscribing to it uh, anyways. Yeah. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm wearing a beautiful cable knit sweater. Like, <laughs> subscribing. It is gorge. Thank I'm here for it. <laughs> um, stay cute for the revolution, guys. Um, anyway, the, about the funder piece, like I, there are some funders with whom I know we are aligned and they are mm-hmm. doing the great, great, great work mm-hmm. in their, in their roles as program officers and senior program officers and board members. And so I think part of, if you are not in one of those roles, your job is to push, um, or manage up and get your management to push. Um, and that's hard and like, you know, that's a burden, but it is part of the work right now. And I also like it's also on individuals, like especially with the development of infrastructure, that technological infrastructure that allows us to generate more individual donations via uh, crowdfunding and other Mm. platforms like this. It's also about how we talk to our individual donors. So I don't want to make this all about philanthropy because if we if we focus solely on that, we fail. Just like if we as you were saying before, if we focus solely on government as the solution, like Mm -hmm. we'll fail. Mm -hmm. It's all of it. And when we talk about funding, I really do want to talk about individual giving at all levels. Ooh. I'm glad we're hitting upon institutional culture because that is a wonderful segue to our next clip. You're <laughs> just hitting all the marks know, today. Doing it. Driving the bus um, with Denise Schumann. And in this next clip, actually, um, Linda Walton actually talks about the changing the values and internal structures of an institution. Right. I'm giving you that context because uh, you won't get to hear the preamble before that. And this is the response mm-hmm. to Linda broaching this idea about values and changing the internal climate of an organization. Right. <laughs> I think you're really in a difficult position. I think it's not possible, frankly. I feel like you would have to start and you would do whatever, whatever way. I think there are granting organizations like Nathan Cummings who are going to look at your board. They're going to say, are you kidding? You know, where they're, in, in terms of, they're looking at a more, they, they're interested in a diversity in the board, a diversity in the staff, and they're going to ask you those questions. And mm-hmm. so you're in that kind of difficult position. I think more and more um, foundations and granting institutions are asked actually asking for that because all the policy stuff hasn't really changed anything. The same people are still in in the positions of power. So now they're saying, okay, we're going to tie this to money. You know, and so I think you're in a difficult position. I think it's going to take some time for you to do that. I think do all the things you said. Partner with organizations, bring in artists and the program, start working on on your staff and start doing your your Board. And this is where I get cynical because I'm also 
part of the conversation I think for me is, but we're still getting a lot of government money and city money and foundation money because of the name and because of the size of the organization. Mm -hmm. So part of the conversation what, that I'm hearing is money is important. And so if the larger organizations mm -hmm. who may or may not be trying to authentically change are still getting those funds, how do we make it more equitable so the people that can be brought into the conversations, the organizations that can be brought into the conversations can form partnerships so the money can be spread out to everybody who needs it and not the, just the bigger companies who aren't doing enough quickly enough? I think it is interesting to me, this focus on institution, right? And it's already come up. And so how do we feel about that? How do we feel that institutions as the core, the center, and how important is it that we change it internally? And I know maybe I'm asking a rhetorical question, uh, but yeah, let's start from there. I, th I mean, it's, I think it's super worth talking about and I don't think we talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. I really don't, or we do talk about it, but it's so hard to do it that we kind of talk about it and then we don't do it. What I loved about this happening at the long table was that arts administrator in the theater world, I believe, was asking the right question. Okay, I'm at a theater company right. that has significant um, impact or influence in the neighborhood, in the theater community, et cetera. We've been doing this for X decades. We know we need to do something different. How do we do it? Mm -hmm. How do we get, how do we, um, Rep, be representative of the communities we serve. And I think specifically she was speaking to, how do we not just do a whole bunch more of white theater for white people? I think that's kind of the core of what she was asking, which um, the response was, I don't think you can do it, which was so <laughs> fire because, right, the assumption, I don't even know the assumption, but I think you were saying this before, Risa, that there's not just like this one way to do it and then we're all going to be happy and free right. and right. holding hands. Actually, it takes you putting up a mirror to yourself right. first. And there's all sorts of things that have to happen before you can even think about doing that, right? Um, it's really easy to hold the flag, but it's really hard to, you know, mm -hmm. do all the work before getting yeah, there. Yeah, when I'm right. faced with conversations like this, it I mean, I always think of, and this is an Acre and PSAB uh, principle, um, which is make change where change is possible. Mm. And it makes me think like, well, if uh, in, you know, so many organizations internally are actually unwilling to change, even if they don't know that. Um, so what's so what's the point? Should we still be organizing within institutions? Like, why are we mm. why aren't we just letting it go? Well, it's I. Mm. <laughs> it's this like, is hard. Think, it's hard to talk about <laughs> it because it's like a total both and for me. And I, yeah. um, I mean, I'm like an institutional player. Like I work for institutions. It's how I feel empowered. I think it's the structure that makes sense for me, especially given all the values you've heard me talk about here. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It continues to be the right place for me. Maybe someday that will change, but it has it has only deepened. And so I just feel it more confidently all the time. I don't think it's the right arena for everyone or all types of work. And so I guess I guess the most honest thing I can say in response to our dialogue that I'm, you know, silently snapping 
to is um, the work that I am most interested in as someone who runs institutions is how can we make institutions inherently flexible and porous so that they can play better with other ways of being in the world, whether those are less formalized groups, which is to say, and by formalized, I mean like, you know, like having your papers as a 501c3 or not, or um, individuals, or things that are even like not human or not inherently human, which is to say like the the earth, like the earth is not a person. Organi I do believe that institutions are, are people, but the earth is not a person. So again, the, the work I am deeply invested in is how do I constantly create more flexible and porous institutions that, you know, behave equitably, that are anti-racist, that are that are transparent because I think as a white person, the radical thing is still being transparent. Um, Cause as I said before, if I'm not, then like we're screwed. Yeah. I think, I think that's my honest answer to this. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling um, conflicted because I think the institution is an interesting place of which we know there's a concentration of power. Yeah. And power doesn't have to be, power can be, is not neutral, but it is not always good and it is not always bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, but where it's concentrated is probably a useful place to move, shift, mm -hmm. you know, divest, mm -hmm. <laughs> invest. Like mm -hmm. that's a useful place to put your energy because mm -hmm. there is a leverage point by which change can occur, I think. That's a, I need to workshop that whole idea I just put out there, but that's okay. I'll think about it more after, after today. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, Risa, everything you just said about your investment in um, institutions being, I'll, I'll use the EMC arts term, adaptive, <laughs> is lit. Because the world will not survive if we concentrate power in the way that we are now. Yes. Mm -hmm. and by the world, I mean our wellness as human beings in the right. world. Right. That being said, that's not going to change in 10 years. Nope. Mm -mm. Uh, so how do we make change with what we have? Question mm -hmm. mark. That's where institutions are less that's, useful. You think? Well, yeah, I think less useful. We are useful, mm -hmm. um, but we are less useful than the again the less formalized groups the individuals the the singular programs that don't need permanent attachment to any one infrastructure mm -hmm. i think those are more useful in showing people other ways of accessing culture which inherently disrupts the narrative that the best way to get your culture is from the giant, the giantist institution. Mm -hmm. the, when I say this as the work I've chosen to do and also been given the opportunity to do is to shape institutions that can be supportive of those efforts mm -hmm. without owning them. Yeah. I guess that's not supportive. I'm realizing that what's like turning in my head is more about what, 
when and where do we sidle up to power? Mm-hmm. And I think sure. people I'm uh, people I'm connected to have very different views about mm-hmm. this, that actually it's really useful mm-hmm. for me to be working at Blank Institution because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm an insider. I'm a I'm a mole, you know, mm-hmm. versus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think it's I think you're right. It has to be both. And yeah, that's clear. All right, so this final clip actually features the two of you. Oh, no. So meta. (laughs) No preamble, so here it is. I'm having an emotional, I'm feeling actually a little bit warm in my face about thinking about the words vulnerability, distrust, and trauma, and power, and institutions, and like all these words that, right, we throw, we sling around like it's nobody's business. Um, But I'm, I'm thinking about how Active listening is a really powerful way for leaders to renegotiate their power in their own organizations and how much it's really easy to talk about that we want to be lateral organizations, but it's really hard to do that. Um, But what would it be like? I think Gary, when we were in that seminar, (laughs) and Joelle Tan, who was formerly at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, was talking about, we were talking about what, what would something really radical be? What if EDs and community engagement officers switched places? Like, what would that look like? Um, and a question I'm often toying with is how how do we actually have a robust and complex and really nuanced vision for equity that's not just the talented 10 at the top, that, you know, that we just need to have the studio museum and that's good enough. What is it? Should we be sidling up to power in that way? I don't, I don't really know. One thing I think about a lot as like as a white person who's an ED who has curated or at least designs programs now is that, and I'll say this for me, and we talk about this on our staff, it's put your taste aside, right? Like I don't have to worry that the things that I want to see are going to get presented. But what I do have to worry about is like, am I, as you're saying, am I sharing my power in an equitable way? That's what I need to be concerned about. I'm gonna keep getting that power. I'm gonna keep getting my taste validated, whether I do that, or whether I'm part of that or not. But what I, for me, what my privilege means is that I can, I can share it and I can give it away because it's gonna keep coming back to me. Mm-hmm. And I can rest assured in that, which means I can just keep giving it away. Mm-hmm. Okay, so safe to say, both of you are very consistent. Yes, <laughs> go us. Go us. <laughs> also means we have. I have no answers for all right. of the things right. that are coming right. to mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I told you already. <laughs> so what does it? What does it mean then to use? You know, coming back to our field and the work we do. How does art or our work as art administrators, how does that help to dismantle oppressive structures? Mm. I've had to ask myself this question in the last two years is like, is art the place for me to do that? Mm -hmm. And do I, do I keep contributing my energy to this art as the institution? Right. Yeah. And is that where I want to be? And is it useful? Is it blah, 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 blah. So again, question marks. I had this experience after this long table where I went to go see the opening exhibit at CCADI mm. in Harlem at the firehouse mm-hmm. and went on a day. I thought it was open and it definitely was not at all. Oh, no. Went with a colleague like over lunch um, and the gentleman who was working there kindly unlocked the doors 
let us in. And it was this really beautiful, meaningful private tour, basically. Um, He literally showed us around both floors and shared with us as a longtime resident of El Barrio why these images, right? There's, there were images, there was a photo series um, w- uh, with lots of images uh, about the, uh, focusing on the young lords during the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's really powerful moving work that is like deeply tied to neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that this gentleman, who it was clear, he shared with us multiple times that he was mostly involved in kind of the operations of the building had been kind of connected to Marta Vega for some time, but his role was to, you know, either be at the front desk or make sure there's a copy of the keys get made or, you know, that mm-hmm. somebody is manning secure the security cameras, whatever. It sounds, what I understood was that was mostly his role. To hear how connected he was to the work of that, that organization, how powerful it was to him to, to be... I don't want to. I don't want to speak for mm, him because mm. he might say it differently. But that's what I felt from our many conversations that day. Mm-hmm. To me, someone who, whose role may not be directly connected to how programs happen or strategic initiatives mm. or direction setting or personnel or whatever, but can still feel that connected to an organization and its purpose, leads me to believe that there's something mm. happening there. Mm around lateral ways of working and a lateral mm-hmm. distribution of power that's probably different than what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to say that I think my my questions, which are still the same from that evening around how do we have a more nuanced and robust right conversation around equity, what would it actually look like to redistribute power inside organization? Um, maybe, maybe it is happening some places and I just don't know. And that experience yeah. was really moving to me. Yeah. And I want that. I want that to happen at other places, you know, Mm -hmm. like, are we thinking about the entire organization top to bottom, especially these big, big organizations or not so big organizations? You know, I've been thinking a lot about um, I've been thinking a lot about urgency and, you know, certainly like what what is the urgent work? How is that changing daily? But actually, more specifically, I've been thinking about the pace with at which we work in our institutions and in listening to that story Mara that I'm really glad you shared I wonder how they were able to do their work at such a pace that would allow for those conversations and those and that kind of lateral ownership to take place because the thing that I I feel one of the walls that I haven't yet figured out how to stop running into is that when I when I mismanage time as a leader, that is when I have to make rushed decisions. And there's like tons of reasons why time gets mismanaged. And I'm not trying to talk about that. So just leave it there. <laughs> but when I mismanage time and I have to make decisions in a rushed way, that is when it becomes unilateral. And then I can't share the ownership amongst the people with whom I am working And then I'm just perpetuating that problem of folks not being able to have um, the highest degree of agency in their work. And so 
if Marta Vega were here, I think I would ask her, can you talk about the pace at which mm-hmm. you all work at CCCCADI? Mm-hmm. I think I added a, a fourth C, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I would ask her about that because I know that it's the answer, actually. That is an answer I have. Hmm. We must slow down the clock um, because that will help us make more responsible, more equitable decisions. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I'm, a, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, there I, is a level in, I think in New York City specifically, <sighs> there's this frenetic, yeah. yep. hasty, mm-hmm. urgent, emergency, a culture of emergency yep. in working. Yep. And I don't think that's that's. I think that's in all manners of working. Yes, I'll make a generalization that prevents us from. Uh, looking down, yes. looking up, <laughs> looking yep. sideways to really mm-hmm. understand what's happening around us and make, yeah. Ooh, mm, I'm taking that with me. Yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. Related and unrelated to what you just said, but trying to connect back to your question, Denise, around how are we um, not contributing towards oppression? Um, and to be real, I think there are times that we are contributing to oppression, mm-hmm. but there's the we're we're so embedded in the system that we can't um, control individually that it's impossible not to mm-hmm. right there are yeah. waves yep. of change that will happen regardless of our action and well sorry Debbie Downer forever <laughs> anyway just to say like it's um it's big and deep and hard and. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, but also like, it's good for us to name that. And I'm glad that you just did, Mara, because any one person who thinks they can change oppressive structures, like really any one single person mm-hmm. who thinks they have that power, I am a million percent skeptical of you. Mm. Like, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the intention at a base level of wanting to disrupt and make it better. But if you think as one person you have that power, I'm wary. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It has to, it has to be all of us and probably all mm-hmm. in all in different ways. Correct. Mm-hmm. I guess the the tension that I'm constantly toying with is at what point do we draw a line in the sand and mm-hmm. say that isn't that or that is not right, you yeah. know? Um, and which is why this conversation around equity is so challenging because we want to both have clear understanding of what is and what isn't equitable mm-hmm. and ambiguous definitions of what those are, right? Yeah. Like those are inherently contradictory. How do we hold both of those at the same time? Yeah. Um, how do we, yeah. anyway, how do we maintain uh, fair wages for artists and arts workers in late capitalism? where art is valued as culture as a commodity, right? Mm, So anyway, all sorts of contradictions that I don't have answers. But I do think, think now that we've talked about institutions extensively, I think think there is something to be said about using uh, the institution as a point of leverage, Mm -hmm. working inside Mm -hmm. of an institution as a method towards something. Mm There, I think there's something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to wrap up this episode, and maybe this is an impossible ask, mm. but what is one thing you would tell 
our leaders and our leaders can be ourselves, right? Like mm -hmm. we are the future leaders um, of this field, of this world. Mm -hmm. What is one thing you would encourage people to do or to think about moving forward as we work through these this nebulous idea of cultural equity? Dear leaders. <laughs> Dear leaders. <laughs> don't look me in the eye. <laughs> um, I don't know. I do know, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I know let me think about it's it. Hard. Yeah. Um, it's more than one thing, right? It's mm -hmm. what is it? I'm thinking I'm thinking about the leaders. Um there there are a number of leaders in New York City who I look up to and admire and am uh, feel confident that they're using their power well and I'm excited about mm -hmm. them being involved in what it means to be a New Yorker right now. And I'm seeing it all over that our leaders are um participating generously in resistance space um so i'll say dear leaders who are doing that thank you yeah that's mm -hmm. important for you to do that i'll also say dear leaders who are not interested in that or think it's not their place to to be involved in that um look in the mirror ask yourself the question <laughs> you mm -hmm. know hmm. oh here's a here's a good one mm -hmm. dear leaders when's the last time you got feedback from your staff Mm, around whether yes. or not Thank the you. way that you manage mm -hmm. the way that you lead mm -hmm. what their opinion is around if that's helping them supporting them to contribute wholly maintain their sanity <laughs> yeah how do they feel as a human in your organization can i also mm -hmm. add to that cuz i want to plus a thousand yeah. to yeah. that and your leaders, if you do do that, be prepared to listen. Ooh. Yes. Yes. Actively. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> it's, you made mistakes. <laughs> and you should hear about it. Um, okay. Um, to white leaders and white folks who aspire to be leaders, slow down. Slow down. Step back. Listen well. Um, and do the work to, you know, co-create leadership positions for people of color and amplify the work that they have been doing, that they have always done, that they will continue to do with you or without you. All right. And so with that, this is the end of the episode. Um, I want to give a little shout out to Jesso and Alex at PS122. Thank you for providing mm -hmm. us this audio and for PS122 and Lexida Center for holding this conversation yes. What is good and valuable and important about it all is that we keep at it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. Yeah. Any final offerings from anybody? Thank you for inviting me to be here. Fab is rad. Yeah. yeah. Strong start to Saturday, friends. Yes. Like setting the bar high for the weekend. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs>